please. And I'm going to take you the next few weeks, and we're going to go uh, through Luke 1 and 2 as we prepare for the Christmas season. I'm hoping we can come right down to the Christmas morning and uh, continue in Luke chapter 2. Just to quote by way of remembrance, how many of you were not able to be in the service this morning? Would you raise your hand? And it's usually about 25% of our group, and sometimes a little bit more. But I uh, just want to remind you about the, the, the book of Luke, and in uh, Luke in particular. Luke was a physician that traveled with the Apostle Paul. He was Greek, and he writes to the Greek primarily. You can know there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, he's the, Jesus, is the king. Mark, he's a servant. John, he's the God-man. But in Luke, he's the man that's God. And so it's a little, he, more of his, his son and man is mentioned 23 times in the book of Luke. Luke uh, is responsible for God inspired all the scripture, but Luke was the instrument that God used to write the two longest books in our New Testament, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. He's very detailed. He's very educated. He may have gotten saved in the city of Philippi. We don't know that for sure, uh, but it seems like that may be a place, but not sure. Some folks might believe that he got saved in Ephesus or other places. I'm not sure. But what happened is that Luke began to travel with the Apostle Paul. Looks like he gave up his, uh, somewhat of his career in local place of, of practicing medicine and traveled with God's man. And uh, Paul had been injured through many of his challenges of, of, uh, of beatings and beaten with rods and beaten with whips and cat of nine tails and all the things of probably whatever he was done. He was, he was shipwrecked. He had a problem with his eyes, we believe. Whenever he writes, he said, I write this uh, enlarge, enlarge with my own hand because they feel like that he had a difficulty with his eyes. He had some kind of thorn in the flesh that he asked God to take away from him. And God says, huh? I think instead of taking away from you, I think my grace will be sufficient for you. Part of that grace would be Luke. He would travel with the Apostle Paul. The last four or five years of the Apostle Paul's life, he was, he was incarcerated. Both times, that, uh, the, 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 the three times he was incarcerated, the first time was in the palace of Caesarea. That's about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem. He was taken by night. You might remember a bunch of soldiers on foot and then also on, on horseback. They put him right in the middle and they took him in the middle of the night to get away from the Jewish plot to kill him and to, and to assassinate him. Assassinate him. So they took him up there. But it was, seems to me like a fairly good place to be in prison. If, you want to, if you're going to be in prison, Caesarea's prison was a place where Festus and Felix were. And, uh, it looks like the, and, and they gave him liberty to receive his friends. They could come see him and, and come visit him and provide for him. Well, when he left there, two years later, he stayed there. And, of course, he talked to the kings of Festus and Felix and again Agrippa and Agrippa's wife, Bernice. But then when God told him to move, or when it was time to move to Rome, they had to go through that terrible um, shipwreck, 14 nights in the, in the ocean, and then landed on the island of Malta, were there for three months, and then they went on to, to Rome. When he got there, uh, Claudius, instead of turning him into the Mamertine prison, he worked out a deal where Paul could stay in his own rented home with a guard that would watch him. And so he spent two years there. And of course, on that boat was not just the Apostle Paul and Aristarchus, but there was also Luke was there. Luke traveled with him. And, uh, but also on that boat was the book of Ephesians. How many are glad you had the book of Ephesians? And Colossians and Philemon and 1 Timothy is on that, book, on that boat. 
And he spent that time, those two years there, and looks like Luke was there, but I think much of the material that Luke got about the Lord Jesus, Luke may or may not have seen Jesus. I personally don't think he probably did. But while he was caring for Paul, while he was in prison there in Caesarea, I think he went down into the Judean hills and he found shepherds. He found uh, firsthand information, eyewitnesses who were there when it happened. It's interesting to me because he writes both Luke and Acts to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus is a man who is a lover of God. That's what the word Theophilus means. Some people think it means he just wrote to anyone who loves God. But most people believe that Theophilus was a man in the Roman government who was wealthy, had deep pockets, but he had a love for God. And he wanted to know more about the things of God. And he loved probably the Apostle Paul. And he said, you know what, Luke? How about if I support you while you take care of him? And in that process, I think Luke spent a lot of time going down to Jerusalem while Paul was in prison and gathering information. At the conclusion, they think he wrote this in AD 60 is the estimation. At the conclusion, when he opens up the letter, he just says, look, I'm... I'm going to write to this letter because I feel like I connected all the dots. I have asked enough people, eyewitnesses and people who administered the word of God that were there or they knew someone was there. I don't know if he talked to Mary, but he may have talked to Mary's kids. He may have talked to James, who was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, who grew up with Jesus. He may have talked to, to Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, who also was a sibling of Jesus. And he told him the stories that, that his mother had told him, how that the angel appeared to him. The documentation and the information in the book of Luke, the Christmas story would be far different if we didn't have it. But we have it because God had gifted a man named Luke with great uh, skill. And he, he learned all that stuff before he got saved. But God had given him an interest, an understanding, an education. And he used what God had given him for the kingdom of God. And this morning I spoke to you a little bit about that. But I do believe that God gives every Christian, not at the time that he gives them eternal life, he also gives them a gift to be used in the kingdom of God and in the church of God. Everybody, every one of you are a gift. Now some of you need to get unwrapped, but you got a gift. Some of you, 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 you've been sitting on your talents. You've been sitting on your gift, or you don't think it's that important. But I want to encourage you, everybody needs to get unwrapped and say, what did God put me on the planet to do? What am I supposed to do with what God's given me? And we find there are seven gifts in the book of Romans, chapter number 6, beginning with the gift of prophecy, and then serving, and then teaching, and uh, then exhortation, and ruling, and mercy giving, and giving. These are the seven gifts that God has given uh, in, in to, the, to everyone. I think everyone ought to, ought, to, ought to thrive in one and you ought to strive for all of them. And I think the more Christ-like we become and the more we take on the person of Jesus, the more well-rounded we'll begin at all of them. But uh, we don't have time to talk about that tonight. But I do think the first two guys here that are mentioned in this passage of Scripture, and that is Luke, who I believe is a gifted teacher. I find gifted teachers like Warren Wiersbe, he's not very, he's not very enjoyable to listen to. I've listened to him a few times in, in real life, but he, he's okay. But boy, does he put some things in print. John Phillips, 
John Phillips, I had the joy to hear him one time. He was in the, the military in, New, in Great Britain years ago for the nation of England. But, and I listened to him preach, and it was okay. But boy, you read his books, and they're rich. Very helpful. I think we've got people in this room, Terry Hederman, someone who can put things in print, and he's wrote a book on the Bible doctrines, and he can just tape it out, type it out. The brother um, uh, was mentioned this morning, Brother Dan Seamer. You know, sometimes I'll go to a staff devotion, and I'll throw out a question. What do you think about this? And before I can get to my office, 15 minutes later, I've got three pages, you know. He can just sit down and just, he can analyze things and put things together. And puts it out there where you can understand what, what you're doing. Uh, Jim Maxwell oftentimes will take time to, to study a passage of Scripture and put things in a Sunday school lesson for our Transformer Kids Club. I appreciate there's gifts, and some of you are gifted. That some I mentioned men, but there are some precious girls that are extremely good. Linda Stubblefield is someone who can, who can take a book or take a concept, and she can put it together where it's readable and understandable, and we can get it. But here we find Luke. Aren't you glad he used his gift? How many like the book of Acts and the book of Luke? <laughs> he used his gift. I think Theophilus, I don't think he probably could write as well, but you know what he could do? He could turn a buck. God had given him a good job, and he used his funds to prosper the, 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 the work of, of missions through Paul and helping Paul with Luke. I think Luke probably suffered greatly from not having, uh, uh, using his occupation to make the money he wanted to make, like a Dr. Seamer. Dr. Seymour, if he had his medical profession, he would have a lot, a lot more choices in his life. But he's chosen to, chosen to give his time to help missionaries. Well, that's kind of what Luke did. I think Luke used that. Uh, excuse me, that's what uh, Luke did. But I think Theophilus was a fellow that potentially, now this is, not, this is not fact, but it seems like to me this guy potentially supported Luke to care for Paul. And then Luke had time to write uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And there are gifted givers in this room. There are people, you see everything through a dollar bill. When someone dies, you're thinking, boy, they're going to need some help. How can I help them financially? When you see a project, I, I throw out this situation with the TriCaster, and I just, I just almost hate spending money on buildings, and I hate spending money on stuff like that. At the same time, it's a necessary evil. But when we throw that out, some of you think, you know what, I can do that. I'm going I'm to give this much for that. That's something we want to take care of. If that's a need my church has, I want to do it. Some folks say, I'm not doing nothing. <laughs> you know, you can write books on how to, how to make a cheaper price on it. Maybe, I don't know. But, you know, everybody has, has, has a different gifts, different strengths. Use your strengths for the Lord. But then God trans transitions into uh, the story of... Uh, of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Two people, they come from the tribe of Aaron. Now, Mary's from the tribe of Judah. That's important to understand. They are related somehow, but probably through marriage. Elizabeth would be a cousin or a relative of Mary, even though they're from two different tribes. But the Bible's very clear that Elizabeth is from the tribe of Aaron. And her and her husband have lived life without children. But they have been faithful to the Lord. And they're from the tribe of Levi. And of course, there were about, they're estimated 20,000 priests, men who were Levites in Jerusalem. That's their job. Once again, just a reminder, there are 12 tribes in Israel. 
And uh, one of them, when God divided up all the property, he gave property to Reuben, to Gad, to Asher, to Dan, uh, to Manasseh and Ephraim. He gave all those tribes property. And when it came time for the Levites, they didn't get any property because he didn't want them messing around with sheep and goats and cows and ranching and farming. No, he wanted one tribe that God was going to be their portion, and their job was to teach God's people his word and his ways. And that was the tribe of Levi. They were the folks. Matter of fact, we have one whole book given to the Levitical tribe. What is that book name? Leviticus. Yeah, he's given to Aaron and his kids to show people how they're supposed to worship God. Because they just come out of Egypt. And they had all the Egypt songs, and they had all the Egypt, Egyptian ways. They had an Egyptian diet, all these things. And now God said, no, we, we're going to march to the, the, to the beat of a different drum here. You're my people, and we're going to... And once again, he gave us Exodus to show how he got his people out of Egypt. He gave Leviticus to get Egypt out of his people. By the way, thank you for coming out on a Sunday night. Thank you for being here on a, on a midweek service. Thank you for going to Sunday school and taking discipleship and HBI classes and Howells Anderson College. In those processes, you're learning. You're helping get Egypt out of you. You're learning things from a different perspective. And I thank God for our people who are willing to learn. It's a wonderful place. Many guest speakers will come and say, man, the people listen so good. And that's who you are. You guys are wonderful students of God's word, and I appreciate that. But they gave them the, the Levitical people, and they were to teach God's people his word and his ways. Well, two of those guys, or one of those fellows, 120,000, and they don't need 20,000 people to take care of one temple in Jerusalem. So according to the David, back in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, he divided them up into about 24 groups. And each of them would take one to two weeks, usually two weeks a year, and they would go. From Sabbath day to Sabbath day, they would go down to the temple and everybody would have a job. The least, the littlest job was opening the door for the worshipers to come. That's where your psalmist says in Psalm 84, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than, a, than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Even a small job, that was a kind of a simple job anyone could do. But each uh, part of the temple worship had a Levite assigned to do it. One of the more special jobs was the burning of incense. And sometimes a man would only get to do that one time in his entire ministry, to, to burn incense on one day. It was done by lot. It wasn't something that a guy raised his hand and said, yeah, do that today. Not some of the superiors said, hey, you take care of the incense today. It was kind of one of those things is that they just kind of drew straws on or cast lots and or they, you know, roll the dice. That well, I don't think they roll the dice, but it's kind of like a, a happen, a happen that it just it was a chance that he was said, "Who's going to do this today?" And number six, you're going to do it. And one day it fell upon Zacharias. He was probably nervous, probably excited, honored to do it. Once again, it could have done many times in his life, but oftentimes a guy would never even get a chance to do it one time. But of all the jobs, someone work on keeping the fire burning. Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 13, the, the, the fire should be burning there and should never go out. Someone had the job to keep the wood going, keep the fire going, the burnt offering. Someone had to cut the animals and, and kill the animals and twist, uh, do the things with the, the different, the different uh, ceremonial laws. But everybody had a job to do, but to burn incense was a special time. And during the time they would burn incense, the people be, would be outside the temple gate, the temple wall. But they could see the incense going up. 
It was a worship to God. It was like prayers going to. And so they would be praying on the outside and they would look up and they would see the incense burning going toward the, the heavens. And, uh, and excited to know that the priest was on the inside doing, burning the incense and hoping that God was pleased with their obeisance and their praise to the Lord. Well, there was time now for Zacharias to do it. And uh, let's look and see of the story real quickly. I want to bring some thoughts to your attention, if I could, please. But I want you to notice, first of all, he was of the priest of Abiah, which is the eighth of the 24 different, different groups of people that served. But look, if you would, please, at verse number six. And they were, what's the next word? That's a beautiful word right there. Both of them were righteous before the Lord. And by the way, I love it when a family loves the God together. When a couple, a man loves God, the woman loves God, and they're both in it to win it. And they both have a good testimony before the Lord. By the way, that's, we're not supposed to serve God with men pleasers, but doing the will of God from the heart. The Bible tells in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21, the ways of men are before the eyes of the Lord. He pondereth all his goings. Listen, friend, you never do anything in secret. God sees everything. You, whatever you see, whatever you have in your phone, you can say, well, I've got covenant eyes, or I watched my wife or my husband. Listen, God knows everything. He knows what happens when you're sitting in your car, your truck. He knows what happens when you're sit, laying in your bed at 11 o'clock at night. He knows what you look at, what you see, what you're tempted at, everything. But the interesting thing about this little couple here, though they had had some very difficult years, and we can talk about that in a moment, they were both righteous in the sight of the Lord. Would to God that every lady got a hold of that. Would to God that every man got a hold of that. You say, Pastor, I'm, I'm married to someone that they're not in the both. And let me tell you something. You can't change your spouse. Nothing more frustrating than trying to change your spouse. Trying to change your spouse will not work. Growing in Christ gives the greatest leverage. You grow in Christ, you have the greatest leverage to see God do his work in your spouse. It'll take patience, love, grace, obedience to the Lord. Uh, I want to encourage you to not do that. And by the way, when you see a problem in your spouse and you handle it wrong, you become the problem real quick. You just complicate things more. God's trying to do work and see your marital problems through, through what God is trying to do and work on you. Draw a circle around yourself and make sure God sends revival to that circle. Quit trying to change your spouse. But it's a beautiful thing here that both of them were righteous before the God. It's a real challenge to me. I want, to be, I want to be with Linda on this. And you pray that I will be. Pray that Linda will be with me. And we can stay, all of us, all the way. Faithfully serving God together. We'll have our hookups. We'll have our problems. There's sometimes I'm weak when she's strong. There's sometimes that uh, I might be a little stronger when she's, when she's in a weakened state. But boy, I want to be both righteous before the Lord. Righteous, saved. And also positionally and personally. Righteous before the God, doing the right thing. And one thing you'll find about the Bible, it majors on the thought of righteousness. Look at the next part of that verse, if you would please, in verse number six. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments. They learned to obey the Lord. Are you an obedient Christian? Do you obey the Lord? Do you do what God wants you to do? Are you honest in your finances? Are you honest at your time? When God tells you to ask someone to forgive you, do you do that? Do you make excuses or do you go ahead and just obey God's promptings? 
It'd be a good day when we always uh, ask God, Lord, help me sensitive to whatever spiritual promptings you give me in my life. Whatever you want me to do, be sensitive to that. They walked in the command. They found out what God wanted them to do. I oftentimes remind people this, but when God made Adam, he gave him a responsibility, gave him a rule, and gave him a relationship. And when men and women are train wrecks in their life, it's because they're not responsible with what God gave them to do. And if you're not responsible, you're going to find depression is going to look down your, your, your pathway. Doesn't mean everyone who has depression is irresponsible. But I'm telling you, one of the things we can do to get out of a depression and out of a tailspin is by doing responsible things. When you find yourself overwhelmed, miserable, looking for a way to get, to, to get out of that thing, ask yourself, am I responsible with what I'm supposed to do? And then go do it. Go do it. If, if, it's, if it's dishes in the sink, if it's, if it's clothes that need to be washed, if it's... Uh, if it's, if it's some kind of responsibility, if it's being a good wife, being a good husband, get, you can have a tailspin of depression oftentimes by just doing what God... Now, here's the problem. You won't feel like doing it. Okay? Here's the way God's wired us. He wired us. He wants us to, to, to exercise faith, and then he brings feelings. Most of us, we want feelings first, and then we'll, we'll see if we want to obey the Lord or not. Always obey the Lord, and then feelings will follow your faith. These folks... They were both righteous before God. So God saw what they were, and he says, man, these people are, they're the real deal. They're genuine servants of Christ. They're right before me positionally and practically. Number two, he said, they, they obey and they walk according to the commandments. What I told them to do, they do it. They live it out. That's what a walk is. A walk. Some of you ladies walk together maybe in the morning or you walk in, um, if you walk with someone, often as my wife tells me, I don't like to walk uh, for nothing. I don't like to play, bat- I like to play if, I, if we can win something. But if we have to just have to just stand on a treadmill, that does not sound good to me or ride a bike in a stationary position. Why in the world would you do that? I don't understand it. But nonetheless, when people walk together, they get a groove. They get in a groove. They're walking. And at first, it's kind of awkward. As time goes on, they start walking together. Uh, had the joy to lead someone to Christ recently, and, they, and I called them after, and they said, I said, well, how are you doing? He goes, well, you know what? Um, I'm starting this prayer thing. He goes, it's kind of awkward, because <laughs> I've never talked to God before. And he said, I said, so what do I do? And I talked to him a little bit about doing that, and he said, you know, I mean, it's better, it's better now on Thursday than it was on Monday, but it's still a little weird. Talking to God. You know, when you first date someone, you're kind of awkward about what you talk about. As time goes on, you get a little bit more fluid. As you walk with God, it's a walk. He said, these guys walk. They live it out. They walk according to the commandments of the Lord. What else do we find out about them? Look at verse number 6. In the ordinances of the Lord, and look at the last word. What's the word say? Blameless. This doesn't mean perfect. This means nothing negative stuck to them. They're like Teflon. You know, you, th- you can throw whatever you want, accusations, but it just slides right off. Nothing negative. You can't say, oh, they're lazy. No, no, they're not lazy. Come on. Oh, they're always criticizing people. No, they're not. They got a foul mouth. No, they don't. No one will agree with you. Doesn't mean they're perfect, but their testimony was one of, of nothing negative really stuck. They weren't perfect. They did have a critical moment from time to time. They probably did have a moment where they weren't as faithful as they ought to be. But for the most part, they were faithful and without blame. And that's a good place for all of us to be. Matter of fact, when you, when you evaluate a person for pastoral leadership, one of the first things, he said, they need to be blameless. doesn't mean they're, they're perfect. There's no way you'll find a perfect pastor. No way you'll ever be a perfect pastor. 
But we ought to be saying, Lord, please help me not to have an anger issue where everybody knows I have a short temper. And I'm known for my bad temper. I'm known for a foul mouth. I'm known for negative comments. Well, you don't want to have that. You want to say, Pastor, I'm not going to be a pastor. I don't have to worry about that. No, you want to be blameless too. You want to be above reproach in how you conduct yourself. And remember, you are not an island. You don't just affect yourself. Everybody's always watching you. You live in a glass house, and it's a good place to live. The Bible says, let your light so shine before. Yeah, people need to be able to see Christianity. They need to be able to see how you conduct yourself, especially when things don't go your way. When the waitress messes up your order three times, that's a good time to be a good Christian. You know, when you ask for eight creams and three sugars, and they give you eight sugars and three creams, good time to be a good Christian. And you're a mile down the road after you realize that you're drinking this, and it's too sweet. Rather than get on the phone and start yelling and hollering, I was in, 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 in a place of business recently, and some fellow, and they, I don't think they were a Christian, but they were just throwing a fit at the counter. Bless the heart of the person there. They didn't fix the, the meal for them. They were just there, and boy, they're just giving them the what for. It's a good time. You know, nothing quite elevates you and gives you a platform of how you behave yourself than when you get conflicted with something. When you get rejection. When you get somebody who, who says something hurtful to you or for you. That's where, the, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the real me comes out. And fires of life, they, they reveal me to me, me to God, and God to me. Whenever, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not what I am when everything's going good in the Wilkerson world. What I am is what I am whenever something comes against me. It's not comfortable, not favorable, not enjoyable, not convenient. That's where I really, you'll see the real John Wilkerson come out. And I'll see that in you, and we'll all see that together. And we see that, you know, why, why do we think so much of, you, everybody in here would probably know the name, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why do you know them? You wouldn't know them if there wasn't a fiery furnace. I'm out the, 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 the name Job. If you're a new Christian, the name Job, okay? How would you, how would you know about him unless he had a bad circumstance? That elevated and God took care of him. It's our difficult times that oftentimes elevate us into a place where people can see, okay, I saw where they handled a difficult thing and it's been glorifying to the Lord. Well, these folks, they were blameless. Look, verse number seven, would you please? The Bible says, and they had no child. Boy, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a tough sentence. They had no kids and no children. Because Elizabeth was barren. And they both were now well stricken in years. And by the way, you'll find out that it was very difficult to be that way. Later in the passage, you'll see that Elizabeth said, oh man, the reproach. We have precious girls in this room that would love to have a baby. And uh, they're waiting. They're waiting that God would give them a child. But in this culture especially, it became a little bit more than just a personal desire and a maternal instinct. It became almost like looked down upon that person. What's wrong with you? And it brought reproach. And father-in-laws and mother-in-laws, they'd all been through that. When are you going to have a baby? When are you going to bring home a baby to me? They heard it in their early years. And they probably thought, you know, we'll have them a little later. And then they went through their 30s and their 40s and their 50s. No baby. And time goes by where it's past that time where children can come. And they've been hurt by it. It's bothered them. And uh, by the way, I think we ought to make sure that we love and encourage 
strengthen precious families that long to do that. I think, by the way, let me just say this, and I'm going to probably get myself in trouble here. You're looking at a guy that has nine kids, all right? But children are not a burden. Children are a blessing. The Bible says that children are a heritage of the family. Is that what your Bible says? Children are a heritage of the... Some of you clowns are really discouraging couples when they have children. And you need to get a check up from the neck up and go read your Bible and get, get along with the Holy Spirit. You'll stop doing that. Some of the comments you make whenever these little families come and they have four or five kids and some of the things you do to poke fun at them, you ought to knock it off. Some of you young couples, you ought to be careful in, in regards to, to understanding your philosophy about how God put together a family. Not everybody can have children. Not everybody can do it. It's not, it's not God's will for everybody. Or there may be situations I don't even understand. But I would say we ought to be very, there's some sweet people in this room. I love them with all my heart. They're some of the greatest Christians in this church. But they weren't able to have kids. And that's where, that's where Zacharias and, and uh, Elizabeth were. They didn't done decades now. This is, not a, this is not a yearly thing. This is not a monthly thing. This is not every six months. This is decades now. And their, their, their dream of having babies and setting up a crib and, and loving and nursing and caring for a baby, that, that, that one came and went. The disdain and the reproach that she felt. and She wanted to be happy for her sister-in-law, no doubt, who had children. And for the neighbor when they had said, we've we got a baby coming. She wanted to be happy for them, but boy, her heart was pain. Some of our precious girls in this room, you know exactly what that's like. And we have plenty of examples all through the Bible of people who went through that. And by the way, if God's given you children, thank God for that. But if someone around you doesn't have one, you pray that God would help them. And you ask God to have mercy and encouragement upon them. And whether it is that God gives them a child or he decides to give them his grace, uh, we ought to be gracious loved ones and, and encouragement to them with all of our heart. And uh, I would encourage you in both of those ways if I could. But she didn't have a, didn't have a child. And certainly that was a heaviness on them. And they were both well stricken in years. They're older now. Verse number 8, And it came to pass that while he executed the, for the priest's office before God in the order of his course, he was doing his job. While he, while he did his job, it was probably a two, they, they lived in a different place, but they moved down to Jerusalem for this week to do his job. He'd come back another time in probably six months. He came, his, came to come and do his job. According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot... It was probably a rare opportunity, was to burn incense, which he went to the temple of the Lord. Verse number 10, and the whole multitude of the people that were there to worship and were praying without the, gate, the, the temple um, fence or, or the wall at the time of incense. They're outside praying while he was burning incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord. We find out later that's Gabriel. An angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. I don't know if this is any significant or not, but I'm just glad to be on the right side. <laughs> and this is, where, this is where the angel was. He wasn't on the wrong side or the left side. He wasn't on the far left. He was on the right. I want to be on the right. He was on the right side of the altar of incense, and he looked over there, and now there's a, there's a figure standing there, likened to a man, no doubt, an angel of the Lord, probably glowing, probably very majestic, he looks over there and he sees 
the figure of an angel on the right side of the altar. Now, verse number 12, and the Bible says, And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. He was, and that's what happened to me, too, if that happened. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear a son, and thou shalt call his name John, which means the Lord is gracious. I want you to notice here, I wonder how long ago he prayed that prayer. He's probably in his 60s, maybe his 70s. I don't know how old he was. But I don't think he was praying that prayer yesterday. That's my guess. Brother Callan, have you been asking the Lord to give you a child lately here? Grandbabies, great grandbabies, right? No. Oh, that, that's not a prayer he probably prayed yesterday or last month. That's a prayer he prayed a long time ago when he felt like it was feasible. You know, it just reminds me that sometimes God's favorite tool working in our life is a tool of delay. Sometimes if he knows when he's going to do something, the Bible says in the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son. He knows what time it is. I think uh, Brother, uh, Brother Cowling preached a great message in chapel. You can get on the podcast at Howells Anderson this week. A great thought about that. God knows what time it is. But he answers every prayer request. He answers it sometimes directly. I mean, right away. As soon as you pray it, God responds. How many have had a prayer answered like that before? Your Walmart parking space, right? You're like, Lord, I want to get a good parking space. Ah, this guy's backing out. This is unbelievable. It's right by the door. And that's great. Sometimes God answers your prayer request quickly. I've had it happen a few times that I just, I couldn't believe it. I said, man, I prayed for that, and that's exactly what happened, and boom, chick-a-boom, it happened right there. Sometimes his answer is directly, and sometimes his answer is his denial. He says no. Now, a lot of us don't like to hear no. I've got a grandchild like that. They don't, they say, no, 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 say yes. Not no. I don't want to hear no. How many of you don't like to hear no either when you ask something? Sometimes God says no. He denies it. Sometimes he delays it. And this is the case I think here. He said, Zacharias, your prayer is heard. And he's probably thinking, which one? The one I just now prayed a few minutes ago? Or he said, no, no, you're going to have a baby. What? I prayed that 20 years ago. Yep. Elizabeth's going to have a baby and you're going to give his name, the name John. It's kind of interesting, too, that Jesus and John both, uh, they had divine names given to them. God told them they didn't get to pick their name for their child. God picked it for them, but it's kind of a neat, neat thought on that. But his prayer, was, his prayer was answered a lot later than he thought it was going to be. You know, let me just remind you to keep persevering in prayer, waiting. And then sometimes God answers it a different way. Sometimes he answers directly. Sometimes he denies and just says, no, that's not going to be good for you. I want cotton candy. No, you're going to have to have macaroni and cheese, okay? Uh, I want this. No, we're not going to get that for you. It's not going to be good for you, not good for you now, not good for you later. And that's why God says no. And by the way, we need to learn to take God's no. Paul said, hey, Lord, if you could take away the storm in the flesh, I could serve you so much better. Huh? Huh? No answer? Let me try that again. Lord, if you could take away... I, could, I mean, I, I know I could travel the world much better if you could take away this eye problem or whatever it was that was his sword in the flesh. Hmm. He lived with it. And three times he asked, Lord, please take it away. 
I could do much better. It's a, it's a, it's a minister of Satan to buffet me. Take it away. I, can, I know I could serve you. And God says, no. My grace will be sufficient for you. You're going to keep your problem, and I'm going to give you, your, I'm going to give you help through your problem. So sometimes God gives us healing. Sometimes he gives us help. Sometimes he says, I'll answer your prayer. Sometimes he says, no, I'm not going. Sometimes he says, just wait. It's coming later. And then the last thing, sometimes he answers it a different way than we thought. How many of you have, have situations where you thought that was what you wanted, but you're glad God didn't give that to you? He answered a different way? Oh, man. I could tell you stories all night about that one. And my prayer life isn't all that good either. <laughs> but I can tell you times where I thought, oh, Lord, yeah, give me that. And I'm glad he didn't give me that. I'm glad he gave me what he wanted. He answered a different way, but he answered, he answered a needful prayer. His prayer is heard. And God gives him a child. And I wanted, I wanted tonight to get through to that, to that part right there. But let's just read the verse, and I want every kid to listen for this next one. Every child, sit up straight, listen for a second. Anybody who has a mom and dad... Verse 14, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. He said, this, this boy is going to bring you a lot of joy. He's going to bring you a lot of gladness. Can I tell you real quickly, boys and girls, young men, young ladies, if there's anything you ought to do in your life while you're young and dumb is to decide, I'm going to make my dad a glad dad. I'm going to give joy and gladness to my parents. I do not want my mom walking around with a cinder block on her chest because of me. A wise son makes a glad father. A foolish son is a heaviness to his mother. If there's any command you have, young people, listen to me. You ought to make your dad a glad dad. You ought to make your mama a joyful mama. The first thing we have about John the Baptist is he was going to bring joy and gladness to his mom and dad. And I want to encourage you. Some of you, you're breaking your parents' heart. Your parents are staying up at night thinking about what you're listening to on your dumb phone. They're wondering what you're, what you're watching on your, on your iPad. They're wondering what friends you're with. And you, need to get, you need to decide, you know what, hang on a second. One of your number one goals in your life ought to be to make your dad an honorable man and make your mom a, a relaxed lady because you love God and you love them. Don't get sucked off into some goofy doctrine or listen to something and get on some podcast or something and get squirrely. I sat with a pastor the other day and he just broken hearted. His son's a good man. He's not a bad person. But he just, he just said, you know, pastor, he just, John, it's just hurt me so bad because he's no longer like us. He just, he thinks rock music and contemporary music is the way to go. He just doesn't care about we, 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 we taught him right, and we, and we feel like we modeled it, and we're some of the happiest family, but we just, he's gone a different direction, and now the grandkids, and everybody's just, he's a good man. Don't, don't think bad of my son. But boy, I've just stayed up a lot of nights wishing that things were different. Wish that he would go to church more faithfully, and wish he'd be more faithful to things of God. I don't know about you, and I don't want my mama to ever have to wonder about that. Continue thou in the things which you've heard and been assured of, knowing of whom you've learned it. I, I think if you look down the pathway of life and you see people that are happy, loving God till the end, they don't have a bad spirit, they've lived out the Christianity, you don't have to evaluate and set your new trek on life and decide, I've got to find out what I believe. Why don't you just adopt what, what somebody who believes the Bible believes and you stay in that track. Most of you got saved because of that. 
And all of a sudden, you want to take a new place. You ought to bring joy and gladness to your parents especially. He said, you know what? You're going to have this boy, and he's going to bring you a lot of joy and a lot of gladness. If you go to, and I tell you this, but just forgive me for reminding you again, but if you can go to Forest Lawn Cemetery in Long Beach, California, we got to keep this kid for 17 years. Blonde hair, six foot, three inches tall. But man, I tell you, the moment I heard he was gone to be with the Lord in the next few days, one thing I could tell you, he, I mean, he, all of his friends said, you know what, he never wanted to hurt you, Pastor. He said, sometimes we would ask him, hey, go do this right here. And he said, you know, I don't think I'm going to do that. That might hurt my dad. That might hurt my mom. He says, he, we've heard him say that 25 times. Come on, Tyler, no one even know. He goes, nah, it might hurt my dad if I did that. Now, he went to heaven. He didn't get to live past his, past his 18th birthday. But he's got a little thing on his, on, his, on his marker. He's been with Jesus now. He's fine. His parents had to figure some things out. But one thing I know, that he lived 70 years, and he brought great joy to his parents. And on his, on his tombstone, it says there, he brought us joy. Because whoso begetteth a wise son shall have joy of him. And boy, just like John the Baptist, every one of us ought to have a joy. Hey, well, my parents are with the Lord. You have a lifetime responsibility to honor your parents. Somebody knows them out there. And you make sure you live in in such a way that they'll bring joy and gladness to your mom and dad. By the way, some of you young people right now ought to take your time tonight. If you want to bow at your seat or come forward, you ought to say, God, thank you for giving me a dad and mom. They're not perfect. I live with them. But they love me, they love the Lord, and Lord, help me to bring them joy and gladness, just like John the Baptist did. Let's stand together, can we please?